Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts, and to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday of each month. We will be sharing information through interviews, general manager, Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. We are back today with Mary Jane Orr, who is the General Manager for Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, Inc., where she leads a dedicated team to advance the Manitoba beef and forage industry through engaging stakeholders, evaluating on-farm innovation, and extension for sustainability of farmers, the public, and the environment. She deeply values the opportunity to collaborate with producers, researchers, education providers, extension specialists, conservation groups, and all stakeholders in field testing management practices and growing understanding of improved production in Manitoba. Mary Jane holds a PhD from Purdue University in soil microbial ecology in agricultural systems and is a professional agrologist and certified crop advisor. Her experience in ecology and field agronomy gives her a unique perspective on the challenges facing agriculture today. Welcome back to the show today, Mary Jane. Today we're talking about a project that started in 2022 and is ongoing at MBFI. This project has been supported by funding and in-kind donations from the Sustainable Canadian Agricultural Partnership, DLF Pick Seed and Secan Seeds. To start, can you give me a brief overview of this project and why the project was chosen to research at MBFI? Thank you, Chantel. It's great to be back on the podcast. And this project is, I guess, one of our favorites here at the farm, if we're allowed to have favorites. This project was actually developed by MBFI staff. So at the time, that included Clayton Robbins, who's our forage research technician, Ron Christensen, who was with us for a year as a beef research technician and is back with us again now on a three-quarter time. And then Leah Rodbang, who was our research technician, but she's now moved on and is working with the Beef Cattle Research Council and myself. So at the farm... Over the years, we've really trialed a number of different ways of growing diverse mixes, both for studies as well as for feed supply. And we've really seen a lot of mixed results and challenges along the way in growing, you know, lots of things together in different ways. So some questions that continue to come up were along the lines of how much forage is actually grown. So do we see a yield advantage? How improved is the quality of the forage that we're growing? So are we seeing, you know, a higher energy or higher protein content? 
And then how can we document changes in soil fertility from a traditional sense, as well as seeing changes in metrics of soil health when diverse mixes are grown together? So kind of under that cloud of questions, we all sat down and brainstormed how we could tackle these questions at a farm scale demonstration and came up with focusing on a scenario for green feed production where we're contrasting a monoculture cereal versus that same cereal seeded at a half of its seeding rate plus a nine-way mix of interseeded species for a polycrop mix. And we selected a 20-acre field that was previously intensely managed with four years of continuous corn production. And that corn was grown for winter grazing. So we weren't seeing a ton of nutrient removal from that field. And that was, you know, cultivated and disked every single spring. It was one of our more compromised fields on our farm in terms of having like a plow layer and some compaction issues. It also has this undulating topography. So it's at the Brookdale farm. So this is Prairie Pothole region. And so this field has a number of water runs or kind of low-lying areas that connect adjacent wetlands, which can make it really challenging under different years, um, depending on how wet the ground is. So we're trying to see if we can really improve the soil structure or the ability of this field to improve productivity across all the acres of this 20-acre field. So for this nine-way mix, we selected different species that really taking into consideration the above-ground canopy, um, so to have different types of canopy structures, as well as looking at different kinds of root structures. And this was a really great idea from Clayton in that he had seen a resource where it actually showed what the below ground root structures look like of different plants. And then you can try and like picture if you had them on transparencies, if you overlaid them, how would they kind of all work together? And so from that, we also wanted to have complementary root structures we wanted to have legumes for nitrogen fixation. We wanted to include pollinator species. And then we also wanted to include some different herbs that have higher sugar contents. And so we grew the monoculture cereal at two bushels an acre versus one bushel an acre in the mix. And we included for the legumes, we had 4010 forage peas, faba beans, and bursine clover. So a diversity of different legumes. Um, we had Italian ryegrass, red prosel millet, which is a warm season grass. For the herbs, we had chicory and plantain. And then we also included a brassica and phacelia as a pollinator. There's a lot of stuff packed into this project. <laughs> More than really I realized, is. actually. <laughs> That's what makes it so exciting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so what are the research objectives? You've kind of hinted on that a little bit already. And what data are you collecting for this project? Well, big picture, there's the above ground and there's the below ground. So from the above ground perspective, our objectives were to measure, is there a difference in yield? So do we get more productivity out of a polycrop? And there was a question of quality. So do we get a higher feed product? As for green feed production, so we are harvesting all the treatments off at the soft dough stage of the cereal. So that's kind of how what we're staging it on, and it's all being taken off for green feed. And then are we seeing a higher quality of forage product coming off the field? And 
then what is that potential regrowth above ground? So are we seeing more productivity or some opportunities to diversify our grazing? Or like, is there enough regrowth to do some fall shoulder season grazing to get additional value out of those same acres? So that's the above ground picture, yield quality, additional growth potential for grazing. The below ground piece, our objectives are to look at how does standard soil fertility change? So are we able to improve the nutrient cycling capacity of that soil to provide more biologically available nutrients over time when we grow a diverse mix versus a single crop? And then, so we're looking at contrasting standard soil fertility testing according to standard agronomic practices. And then we're also looking at measuring and categorizing what differences there are in the different measures of soil health. So are there changes in the physical parameters of the soil, the chemical parameters of the soil, and the biological parameters of the soil? And are, are we seeing an improvement in the soil health of that field over time as we're increasing the biodiversity of that field? I think we have some listeners who maybe aren't quite as well versed in all of the terms that are being used. Can you explain what the mid soft or hard dose stages are? Oh my gosh. Yes. So for cereals and when the grain development, as the plant flowers and then sets seed, it goes through grain development stages. And so we can go out and scout the field and look and pull grain heads off of the cereal crop that we're growing and identify whether it's either at the milk stage would be really early reproductive stage, whether it is, you know, firmed up as a seed kernel, but still really soft. And then there's kind of a, a sliding scale of maturity as that grain develops to being a fully mature grain that would be harvested for grain. And so there's a lot of opportunity to kind of play with staging your green feeds. So there's some really great work done by actually Greg Penner from the University of Saskatchewan gave a presentation at last year's uh, Manitoba Beef Producers AGM looking at exactly that question of how do you, what's the best stage to cut your green feed at? And I'm digress a little bit here, but his takeaway message was actually that you have a potentially higher return if you wait a little bit longer and let that grain mature more in harvesting it for green feed and you'll have higher energy contents and there's a, a beneficial return in that. But we're kind of following what had been kind of a previously rule of thumb is that you would cut your green feed at about that soft dose stage. So it's fully firm formed kernel, but still quite soft if you were to indent it or squeeze it with your thumbnail. Thank you. The other question that I had that came up out of your answer was, can you tell us more about kind of the different root structures that are in the diverse crop mix? For sure. So I'm not doing this justice by any means, but if you think of conventional, like you have a tap root, which is just a solid root that grows straight down and without a lot of lateral roots. And that tap root can either be narrow and thin, um, or it can be bulbous, like a turnip or a beet. And so there's Within a taproot structure, there can be a lot of variability, but it basically is a single primary root that goes straight down versus 
more of a fibrous root system that is going to be like really fine, finer roots, more narrow roots that are kind of spread out like a net throughout the soil. And different plants may have those fibrous roots, maybe go, they're maybe more adapted to going further out to the side versus going straight down all the way. Some plants may have a kind of primary tap root, but also have really strong lateral root systems. So that means they kind of go straight down, but also out from the side. And studying below ground systems is incredibly difficult because it's so labor intensive and it requires you to like, how do you see through the soil? And so people that study roots have a really big challenge in front of them because you basically would have to dig up a whole big area and then just gently, very gently wash away the soil without losing any roots in the process. So it can be pretty tricky to get good representation of how something is actually growing through a medium you can't see. But there are root morphologies. So by rights, if you have um, taprooted species growing with more fibrous root systems, and then you're able to take advantage of the same volume of soil more effectively. So you're accessing different aspects of that soil profile. Another really neat thing is that different plants have different relationships with soil microbes. And so there's mycorrhizal fungi, which are known to increase the ability to take in water. The fungi grows as little filaments, so tiny that you can't even see them. And they, they are able to navigate into smaller spaces between soil particles and absorb more water and absorb more nutrients like phosphorus and transport those back into the plant roots. So you could have, you know, a crop that is, has a fibrous root system, but then it also has a really great mycorrhizal relationship. And so it's accessing more square footage within that cubic volume of soil, which allows you to do more with that same footprint. You did a really great job of explaining that. How was the project designed? Where are the plots located and how many times are they replicated? Our focus was to do farm scale. Um, so this is a demonstration, not destined for peer review and publication. So this is a replicated study, but it is done on a farm scale approach. And so we had, as I mentioned, this 20 acre field and it's highly variable with, you know, rolling some kind of high areas and low areas. And so what we've done is we cut out an 80 foot buffer all the way around on the headlands so that 80 foot buffer zone is seeded the same as the control treatment, but we exclude it from any of our measurements. So we were avoiding that transition zone from the adjacent field areas into the main field area. So once we get past that buffer area, we divided the field into 14 plots and they run north-south along the field and they're each 80 feet wide. But then because the field is an irregular shape, each plot has a different length that it was seeded. So some plots are shorter, some plots are longer, but we have 14 plots that run north-south. And then we have the two treatments, a control of the monoculture uh, cereal and then the polycrop treatment. And so each treatment gets seven replicates and they were randomly assigned. So of those 14 plots, seven of them will be grown just as a monoculture green feed and the other seven will be grown as the polycrop green feed. And can you explain what a monocrop is and what a polycrop is? 
or polyculture is for anyone who's unfamiliar? Yeah, for sure. And it can be kind of tricky depending on your context and where you're thinking about what some of the different terminology of growing diverse mixes together are. So caveat, this is my understanding, not necessarily to be taken as the absolute golden rule. Um, <laughs> everyone may have a different take on it, but uh, monocrop is pretty straightforward. That's a single plant species grown by itself. So this would be most conventional agriculture. When you're driving around, you see a straight, beautiful yellow field of canola. That's a monocrop. Or you'll see just wheat by itself grown and it is um, solid seeded, one variety, one plant species. So that would be what we call a monocrop. Um, and that would be the more conventional practice of what we'll see predominantly grown across the landscape. And then we have polycrop or it could be an intercrop or it could be a cover crop. And oh my gosh, what's the difference between them? And so for my interpretation or our interpretation, we um, have polycrop as being more than two species grown together for the purpose of a harvest. And so we're harvesting it for green feed. Um, a polycrop could also be, you know, more than two things grown together and it's going to be grazed or it might be taken for silage. So there would be some agronomic purpose of it being taken off and used in some way. Intercrop in contrast, may be more applicable to grain cropping systems where you may see the peola, like so you have peas and canola grown together and they're harvested at maturity and the grain is separated by seed sorting afterwards. Other great intercrops might be forage, oats, and peas. So peas and oats have been grown together for ages or fall rye and sweet clover. Those would be examples of where things are companion planted or intercropped together. They're taken to maturity together. Intercropping may potentially being more focused on taking things to harvest. And then the terminology for a cover crop would be that its, its primary purpose is to cover the ground as a catchment. And it's going to be growing kind of in that spring shoulder season outside of winter primary uh, grain cropping is from, you know, the end of April to now, like, so crops are coming off already. So we have our primary growing degree days in the summer. Then we have kind of a spring season and a fall season where we could potentially have something growing and that would be a cover crop. And uh, that cover crop could just be something, a monoculture cover crop, like fall rye, or it could be a polycrop cover crop. You can really get <laughs> kind of stumbled up on the semantics sometimes. But for our purposes, for this project, we're growing more than two things together for the purpose of an agricultural feed or a forage product. So that's why we went with polyprop. And we kind of went back and forth between whether it's a polyprop or an intercrop, but we settled in on polyprop for whether we're right or wrong. I think we can wait and see what feedback we get potentially. I feel like there's a lot of different terms that are used and some of them, like you said, are pretty similar, but they maybe just have slight differences. So I'm glad that you were able to provide that for us today. What ecological benefits do polycrops provide that maybe aren't being seen with monocrop use? Okay. So this could be, I could be talking for a minute here. There's so many fantastic opportunities for seeing ecological benefits out of increasing diversity on the landscape. So there's growing recognition on the importance of diversity, both above ground and below ground. 
and recognizing how plants can be complementary or beneficial when grown together. So when we see plants that have different canopy structures, and by canopy, that would be like how their leaves come out and fall, whether they're narrow leafed, like kind of blades of grass, or whether they have broad leaf, like more foliage that takes up more area or grow in the, in the understory or grow up high and erect. So by having different types of plants that put out different types of leaves, we're able to theoretically capture more sunlight that's coming down on that same square foot of soil. And then as we already discussed, having those different root structures theoretically allow us to have more nutrients captured and access water, more water out of the soil. And that really adds resilience to potentially challenging growing conditions. In the case of adding in legumes, when we increase diversity with legumes, we can see the benefit of increasing nitrogen fixation. And that translates into a higher forage protein content. When we include flowering species, we increase the amount of food sources year round for pollinators. And that also creates habitat for beneficial insects that may help us out with combating our pests um, and keeping them at bay or keeping them more in balance than having big spikes of high uh, pest pressure. Some plants have a higher capacity to bounce back once they're cut. So in this example of our focus on green feed, some plants are able to regrow more than others. So that contributes more to the overall net productivity on that you know, square foot of land by continuing to grow into the fall shoulder season. And that could add the benefit of increased grazing potential so we're getting another output from that, from that land, but then also improving the soil health by having plants growing longer, maintaining an overall net productivity on that, on that land. And then as by having those different root structures growing at the same time, we can take advantage of field variability and changes in growing conditions. So some plants, um, when you have them in a mix, may be better adapted to growing on eroded knolls versus a more waterlogged low-lying area. So if you only have one plant, it is just going to have its ideal growing conditions. And then it is either going to go really awesome in the good spots or really poor in the bad spots. And I think we're all pretty familiar with seeing that variability in a field where we say, oh, I know where my yield map is going to be highest. By having a diverse mix, we're putting down the same seed mix across all the acres, but we can see really interesting things in the ecology of plant adaptation to different growing conditions. So we can see some areas that might have, you know, more of the cereal and other areas where the warm season millet might come in more or where we may see one type of pea grow more than say the fava bean. And so there's this ability of kind of building in contingencies in your growing potential across that field. And so then there's also growing recognition of how leaky our, all of our plant root systems are and how those nutrients can actually flow between plants, which is an incredibly quite, like, challenging thing to study academically to really narrow down the precise kind of mechanisms of how that's happening. But we are seeing that by adding diversity, there may be some plants that have stronger mycorrhizal relationships, as I mentioned already or maybe leaking more carbohydrates or sugars into the soil. And that's increasing the food available. 
to soil microbes. And that keeps them active longer. And when they're active, you're seeing an overall increase in nutrient cycling within the soil. So that's turning over that organic matter and making maybe some nutrients like phosphorus or nitrogen that may not have been plant available before. But by increasing that overall microbial activity, you're seeing things being plant available for longer or in different time period windows. So that's pretty exciting, but can be highly dependent on the soil conditions. So it is really tricky to nail that down precisely. And I'm kind of leading into then the soil health piece. So the ecological benefits of improved soil health is a huge topic, and it can be a really big idea to try and get our heads around. So we think in terms of how can we measure it, there's three buckets, and these three buckets go way back to before it was soil health, and we were really trying to characterize soil quality. But these three buckets have stayed true as a way to frame how we think about soil health. So they're physical, chemical, and biological. So the physical is what is that structure of the soil? Are we able to improve the pore space and stability of soil aggregates? And this can be, I think, in terms of practical farming, this may be one of the bigger ticket items because it all ties back to water. If you can improve your soil structure, so if you're able to increase the organic matter that builds more pore spaces into your soil structure, and if you can stabilize the aggregates, which are kind of the little clumps of soil particles that are all held together, if we're able to make those more stable when water flows over them, if we have a rainfall event, we're able to increase how much water we're able to absorb into that soil and how much water we can hold in that soil. And why is that important? I mean, the two biggest things are trafficability. So how quick you can get on your field after a big rain, that's pretty important and has been a challenge in this field that I'll kind of get into later. And then how much water is held in your soil that is plant available between those rain events. So if you can hold more water in your soil profile, longer, then that means the plants growing there are going to have access to that water longer between rain events. So they're going to be less stressed if we have, you know, mild drought conditions or something like that. Are they going to have higher productivity where the same plants grown on the same soil type, but with poor soil structure will become stressed and see a yield dip more quickly when they don't have that poor space for air and water to support their growth. Um, so that translates very strongly into direct outcomes for farming. The other ones I mentioned physical. So the biggest ticket item there is water infiltration and how well we can hold water. The chemical aspect of soil health is nutrient cycling. And what we're all excited about these days is carbon. So how are the you know macronutrients and micronutrients for plant growth being made available or cycled through that soil profile? And how is carbon being sequestered and held in the soil is really the chemical piece. The next bucket is biological, but chemical and biological are really closely tied together because a really interesting thing is that the majority of plant nutrients have to go through a biological, like through a soil microbial process. So a lot of plant available nutrients uh, really go through a biological um, cycling process. So 
sulfur, phosphorus, nitrogen, carbon are all manipulated through a microbial process in soil. The only outlier would be potassium. So it's more of a inorganic, it binds to soil particles and releases based on soil pH. So it's not as biologically driven, but really recognizing the importance of biological processes and making things plant available has been kind of glossed over because we can put down whatever nutrients we want by adding fertilizer. But there is this whole opportunity if we want to study ecology and figure out the driving mechanisms of what makes a biological system active or not active. So that's super management intensive. I mean, (laughs) it's not the same as ordering fertilizer, having it applied and you don't have to think about it again. If you're trying to manage the flow of nutrients through a biological system, then it becomes incredibly management intensive. And you have to try and think about what are the limiting factors that are going to stop my microbes from doing their job of making things plant available. And so when we measure the biological process, that starts becoming, okay, the number one thing that's an easy metric is organic matter. So are we seeing increases in organic matter? And then mineralization rates. So we can measure how those invisible microbes are able to transform one form of nitrogen into another form of nitrogen. We can see how it'll take carbon from a carbohydrate and turn it into um, a humic material that's much more stable. And so we can measure mineralization rates or the rate of kind of the chemical process of those enzymes turning a a compound from, from one form into another. And so we measure that by soil microbial activity. And so that's the, you may have heard of kind of the Solita test. So that's measuring the activity of the soil microbes, which is kind of um, an indicator of how active the overall community is. And then we can also, if we're really into understanding the soil microbes, we can then figure out what their overall biomass is and what their community structure would be. So that would be the more uh, similar as with plants, the more diverse, the more different resiliencies you have for the same kind of processes to be carried out by different organisms. I did have a lot of thoughts that I was kind of making notes of (laughs) while you were talking, but I didn't want to interrupt you and then have you lose your train of thought. So the first thing that I was thinking about, first of all, is just how amazing the fact is that we can study this stuff, how far science has come to be able to study the microbes and what they're doing in water infiltration and all of that stuff, like you said, with the root structures, when you can't even see it without it being extremely labor intensive. And the other thing that I was thinking too is when we're looking at the benefits between a monocrop and a polycrop is when you think about nature and how plants naturally grow in the environments when they're not touched by humans, there's, I don't know if you would ever find anywhere that's a monocrop naturally occurring, would you? I think it depends on succession. So some plants have the strategy of live fast, die young. And so they can come in, like if there's a fire, you could see maybe one species dominate, but then that quickly changes as the natural system goes through succession to find their equilibrium for their new normal. So I think you can see patterns of it, but our current, like our conventional agriculture of maintaining a single plant species and eradicating anything else that may take 
a beam of sunshine or a drop of water from it or a molecule of nitrogen or phosphorus from it. That is, yeah, incredibly unnatural, but it's a fine honed system that's been developed over the last 50 years with the goal of yield, right? So it's been the study of agronomy has been really marching forward to the whole goal and purpose is improving food production. So how can we get the highest quality uh, grain product that is in the greatest purity for processing and is not going to have toxins from molds in it, isn't going to have any contaminants in it, that it's going to be a high quality food product. So that's been the driving factor. And what is really exciting and kind of a paradigm shift is when we look at integrating polycropping or cover cropping or intercropping, it's taking a step back and looking at what the trade-offs are from a perfect yield advantage to what are some other benefits of growing things together. So am I willing to sacrifice a little bit of that genetic potential for a certain yield capacity for maybe some more desirable co-benefits? So I can still get great productivity or an agronomic product out of, out of my ag production. But then I'm also, I may take a little bit of a cut in its total potential, but I have all these other co-benefits from a practical setting, improving water infiltration. So holding more water so that I can survive dry, dry spells better. I'm improving water infiltration so I can get on my fields faster without damaging the soil structure and having compaction and hard pan issues. Having better nutrient availability so that I may not need to purchase as much fertilizer and have that inputs cost. So can I lower my inputs cost by supporting more nutrient cycling within the soil that I already have? So, but that takes more management and thinking about the different factors that shift them. And it is a trade-off. So there's ultimately with whatever management system you're choosing, there's a a trade-off for what your goal is. So if your goal is peak yield of a single commodity, then it's going to be hard to integrate some of these practices. And what we're hoping with this project is that we can see how that actually rolls out in our, our crazy, you know, the weather that we've been having and having them side by side with so many replicates. We're hoping that we can, yeah, get a, a handle on are we seeing an advantage to try and growing things together from just a farm management perspective? I need to grow food for my cows. Um, but then also from an economic perspective of like, how much does it cost me to improve my soil health? And then am I actually seeing those benefits that we think we theoretically should be seeing? So hopefully it'll all kind of hang well together. And that kind of addressed two of the other things that I'd written down, which was balancing that fertilizer cost with what your yield production is going to be out of it. And also the fact that both the monocrop and a polycrop serve a different purpose, depending on what the goal of your operation is. And that rolled really nice into my next question, which is how are you measuring forage yield and quality? So for our seven replicates, we have some pseudo replicate sampling within each cell or paddock or replicate. And so we go out and we take our quarter meter sampling frame and we fit it in over the rows and we take a pair of scissors and we uh, get down on our knees 
and we flip within that quarter meter three times for each replicate. And then we sort out the weeds that we have in them. And we didn't take the extra step of identifying if each seeded polycrop species was there, but it was more, we delineated along, is it a weed or is it something that we seeded and we wanted to grow there? So it could be, that's kind of a joke, but like weeds just have a branding issue. They're just that unintended diversity, right? But we did want to distinguish in our yield between uh, weedy species and desirable species. And so we did that sort off and then they get dried down and then weighed and composited. So then they get chopped up and mixed up and sent away for a total forage analysis. And that gives us forage quality. So our sampling package is a 2FF from central testing is where we send our samples. And then from that, we're able to get pretty much a standard feed test. It tells us what our protein content is, what our key nutrients are, what our energy levels are, like gives kind of a relative feed value for that forage. And what is this study looking at in terms of measurables for soil fertility and for soil health? Well, first things first, soil fertility is a super easy one. So that's just standard conventional soil testing. So zero to six, six to 24, and it gets sent off to egg buys. And that's kind of your conventional agronomist recommendation. So that'll give you, depending on what was grown and what we plan on growing next year, you can get nitrogen or fertilizer recommendations from that. So we're including that as kind of a benchmark. And then for the soil health piece, we're having measurements in those three buckets again. So for physical characterization of soil health, we're looking at bulk density. So that's a measure of how much airspace there is. So if I were to take a cylinder of soil on a per weight basis, how much is it soil particles or organic matter and how much of it is open airspace within that perfectly sealed cylinder, soil cube. And then we're also looking at aggregate stability. So when we look at an aggregate being, if you were to take a handful of soil and, and kind of break it apart, what the the last kind of singular unit of a soil's clumped together. So you can have macro aggregates or micro aggregates. And so how stable are those? If they get a little bit of wind or a little bit of water touch them, do they just blow apart or do they hold strong held together by all of those, you know, ooey gooeys that the microbes are pushing out into the soil as they're doing their enzymatic processes of cycling nutrients. So aggregate stability is really important for holding soil structure, which ties into another measurable is available water capacity and then water infiltration. So bulk density and water infiltration are done in the field, but then from those soil samples, aggregate stability and available water capacity or holding capacity. So that's more how much, you know, water is held in that soil when it's taken to a certain pressure. So they kind of put it in a pressure chamber and evaluate under different dry downs or how much water can that soil hold. So that's done in the lab. Chemical, we already mentioned the standard fertility, but then we want to measure those mineralizations. So those processes of transforming a nutrient from one form into another. So that would be like active carbon. So it would be something that would indicate how well or how much labile carbon there is. So that's kind of readily 
recently transformed from a plant material into active carbon. And then we also will be doing the Haney soil test. This has had some criticism for being so very different from a standard conventional soil test because it's water extractable. And so that water extractable nutrients is really giving you a snapshot in time of if you were to take a straw and pull out what nutrients were in the soil water on the given day that you sampled, then that would tell you on that snapshot in time, that is what a plant would have available for it to grow. So it just doesn't have the same type of standardization and like small plot research of validating plant growth curves against the soil test values. So when we talk about standard soil fertility, there is a fleet of researchers across the world that have been testing soil fertility measures under standardized conditions and then measuring plant growth in relation to those soil test values. So you develop a curve. And so you get a pretty good idea of if I have this soil test value, I'm going to have this plant response. And so it's this body of data that provides confidence in making agronomic recommendations. And where the difference is with something like the Haney soil test, where it's taking water extractable measurements or weak acid extractable measurements for different like soil safe or phosphorus or something. It's giving you a snapshot in time, and those tests just don't have the same body of data that the conventional tests do. And so you just have to be a little bit cautious in making the same type of agronomic recommendations from those newer tests that are, have been rolling out. Those databases will continue to grow the more they're done, but it's just hard to catch up with what the conventional soil testing has been done. But we'll be doing both to have that comparison. And then for the biological measure of soil health, we'll be looking at how much organic matters in the soil. So that's easy. That's included in a conventional soil test. But the different part would be looking at, okay, well, what's the biomass? How many microbes do I have in my soil? So that's called a PLFLA. So that's phospholipid fatty acid analysis. So that gives you a quantifiable amount of kind of cell material that is specific to microbes that is sucked or extracted out of the soil. So it is a quantitative method. And that'll also give you a sense of the community structure on a broad scale. And then the other measurement for biological aspects is microbial respiration. So that would be the Sylveda test. It's really just think of it as putting the microbes on a treadmill and measuring how much CO2 they're breathing out. So it's like a challenge test. And then you can get a sense of both how active they are, but then also what they're mineralizing out of the soil that they're in. So it can kind of give you an indication of what they're able to mineralize carbon that they're able to mineralize out of that soil in a snapshot again. So microbial respiration is very, very sensitive to changes in soil temperature, moisture. So if you don't have similar moisture conditions, your microbial respiration can be all over the map. If you sprinkle some sugar on top of your soil, it's going to, you're going to have like rocket fuel, right? So that's going to have super high, like a burst of CO2 being released. It's a very sensitive indicator to changes in the soil. But when we're trying to detect a management impact, all these things I listed off are different ways of kind of poking holes of light into this black box of soil that we're trying to understand. And each one kind of has some caveats or assumptions that we're using. 
Each adds a really valuable piece of information, but no one test can really tell you everything about your soil, just as my kind of caveat to the soil health testing piece generally. And are each of those done once a year or are they done spring and fall? It's a balance, a trade-offs again, of labor and cost. So the first year we had a lot of challenges and we almost really needed to write off the whole study. So we decided, you know, what's the best time of year to sample? Are we going to sample in spring when all the microbes are waking up out of fall, like winter dormancy and we're having, you know, nice spring rains and everything is firing away? Or do we want to capture the impact after a growing season in the fall? So there is no perfect way to do it. The way that we've navigated it and decided based on our logistics of labor and costing for how many samples we can process, we went with fall sampling. So last fall, we didn't do the soil health testing because we had to adapt to the conditions of last year. And so it just didn't seem like that data would be as impactful as we wanted it to be. So we deferred to sampling, the the intensive soil health sampling will be done this fall. Right now we're reporting it's early September. That'll be happening in probably about another month. So once the soils cool down, some of our measurements will be very different if we sampled in the spring and we kind of have that peak activity. But that'll allow us to kind of standardize year after year We'll do the fall soil sampling, and then that'll be aligned with kind of conventional soil fertility testing. So we could definitely have feedback on, you know, better or different ways of doing that. But for managing the variables, we kind of went, decided to go with fall sampling to capture the impact of that growing season and to have the soils kind of going into fall dormancy. And one of the beauties I think of MVFI is that you can run a project like this kind of more long-term so you can find out those results. So how many years will this project be in the works or be running? So we had our first crack at it last year and we had really great above ground data despite the challenges. And then this is our second year. Next year should be the last one on the books, but depending on if it's renewed or not, or depending on what we're seeing come out of it, If the project comes up for renewal with our research advisory committee, we may choose to do it again for another year because the first year was a bit of a wash for the soil health testing part. So we kind of see, kind of see how it goes from there. We were going to talk more about the challenges later on, but you've kind of alluded to them a little bit. So why don't we talk about that now? So what real life challenges impacted this project in 2022? And I guess, how did this change the trajectory of the project from there? For sure. So in 2022, I can't remember how many Colorado lows we had come through in April, May, June. And so too many, (laughs) right? Too many. It was brutal. So as I mentioned, this field had been in continuous corn. We're not seeing really great water infiltration. It's always been the last field that we can get into without sinking a tractor into it. And so we just had a lot of delays. And then we also had a lot of washout. We couldn't seed. It it got to, again, a pinch point or trade-off, the real world challenges. Are we going to seed this or are we not? And so we decided to try and get seed in the ground late June 
out of 20 acres, we only maybe got 12 acres seeded. And so it wasn't really ideal because we had larger areas of low-lying areas that just became massive weed banks. In the areas we were able to get seeded, we were able to collect results and we did see some interesting outcomes from that. So there was still value and we got value out of it. But because of how many unseeded acres we had and the weed pressure, we cut a little bit early. We cut the whole field, put it up as green feed, and then sprayed it out. So we had to terminate. We made the decision to terminate the whole field. And yeah, and I've received feedback on like, why didn't you graze it? Why didn't you do a number of different things like after like the regrowth piece? So even though in the good areas, it was fantastic data and we had like phenomenal regrowth and it was going to look amazing. What about the other 10 acres or the other half of the field? Like how do we manage that so that we can generate data out of it in the coming years? It was a trade-off management decision, right or wrong, but we chose to terminate the whole field and seed it all into fall rye. Our hope there was that the fall rye would help combat the weed pressure that was coming in and that it would provide better growing conditions in the next spring. So that rye would be able to soak up any excess moisture and it would be easy to terminate and seed into and then also have something growing in the spring that would be a nice seed bed to seed into and that did work it worked really well actually so this spring was a lot better we were able to terminate the fall rye and then go in and seed and so our plot establishments so the size of our plots were true to how they were designed this year so that worked really well, but then this year, weeds, weeds, weeds. And so, you know, all that time I spent talking about staging the cereal for, you know, the grain maturity for harvest, we actually cut it early because we had all these, like a, a, a blanket of weed pressure coming in that we didn't want to seed out. We went out and did our sampling and then cut the whole field early and took that off as green feed. And then it, it regrew and we've cut it again a second time. And so now whatever grows, we're going to leave until probably the first week of October. And we are seeing some great regrowth potential again on the whole seeded areas. But it's this constant challenge when you're doing polycrop mixes is your threshold of weed pressure and how comfortable you are. Because for all the benefits that we talked about of you know, why we want to increase diversity within a stand. There's also kind of the flip side of practical conventional agriculture, where we know that weeds strip away productivity and also overcoming our paradigm of thinking of seeing weeds and being horrified by them. Like just how we look at a field and see it as good or bad is a really challenging thing to kind of work through as we're trying some of these different practices and some of the limitations we have when we're growing things together in terms of conventional control. This challenge of weed pressure, we're trying to use all the tools. So we're cutting earlier to try and knock them back and allow our desirables to bounce back quicker. So trying to give them a competitive edge. We're spraying in windows that is works for spraying. And then we're using a cover crop of fall rye to try and help us as well. 
The field's been cut twice now. And so we'll see how it's regrowing over the next month or so. And then we'll have to make a decision probably the second week of October on if we let it continue to kind of grow and go into dormancy or if we want a fall control or if we'll use a spring control or just rely on a spring control or use both. It's amazing to me how you can have your plan in place for what your project is going to look like. And then just like on a farm, you guys have the same challenges. I know in 2022, I think it was a common theme of, are we going to seed this or are we going to end up getting stuck? Or are we going to leave this because it's too wet? And then just listening to you saying, this is how we had to change. And this is the decisions we had to make. And we're still trying to make the project viable and trying to deal with all of these challenges. So it's not like you're under an umbrella and you have all of these perfect growing seasons and growing <laughs> conditions to make these projects work in. Well, and it's a challenge making those decisions, right? And then it's also, like, do we have the cattle? So we maintain a herd. We have we had about, I think, 58 pairs last year here at Brookdale Farm. But if those cows weren't committed to a, a summer grazing study, then maybe we could have run them through. And instead of cutting it, we could have grazed it, you know, bunched them up and moved through it more quickly. Whenever we're faced with challenges, you, you look at what you have of it in front of you and what you can use as tools and do what makes the most sense for your operation. So for us, we have additional limiting factors of, you know, either land or equipment or cattle are committed to different projects. And so that can kind of tie our hands quite a bit in how if we were just uh, a farm and we had, you know, a hundred pair that we could just move over it really quickly, then yeah, grazing it would have made a lot more sense. But we needed it down and we didn't want seed heads or like even more weeds going into the seed bank. So then we, yeah, we clipped it back and sprayed. And so I guess using the cards you're dealt and not being too upset about the cards that are under a rock or <laughs> committed <laughs> or like tied up or committed to some other aspect that's going on. Yeah. Cause your cows are in grazing projects and grazing studies where they're committed to being for most of the grazing season a lot of the time, right? Yeah. Sometimes we can, you know, hop them out if there's a break in rotation or something, sometimes we have a little bit of flexibility, but for the most part during, you know, from May to October, our mature cow herds, like our cow-calf pairs are really committed to their summer grazing studies. We do maintain a group of heifers, our replacement heifers, but that's only 25 to 30 heifers depending on the year. And then it takes a long time for 25 heifers to graze 20 acres. So <laughs> Sometimes logistics can be a little bit challenging. So as you start doing some of these practices, it's like, oh, geez, I wish I had more cows just for a month. And I guess that's where some of the opportunities for custom grazing would be really great with some of these annual polyprop um, pieces, uh, especially for the fall regrowth. So it's like, oh, man, if only I could run, you know, magic, you know, a herd of 100 head or something and push them through and have that animal impact and even more improvement. But it's uh, all about the logistics and trade-offs. So it's still pretty early in the study. And last year, like we said, was the first year. But what key findings emerged in terms of forage yield in that growing season? So for 2022, despite all of those challenges that I just whinged about, from the areas that we were able to get seeded, we did see some pretty interesting results. 
So we did see an increase in overall forage productivity. It's not going to sound like a lot, but we did see the polycrop produced on a dry matter basis, 650 more pounds per acre of desirable forage. So what does that mean, dry matter basis? So that means that we took those samples and dried them in an oven and removing all the moisture content out of them. So that's so that when we're making comparisons, everything's on a dry matter basis so that we're not attributing yield to just moisture content of the forage. That can kind of not sound like a lot, but if you were to translate it to an as-fed basis, it actually makes a pretty significant difference. So that extra 650 pounds per acre of dry matter was significantly more forage productivity. But then we also saw, when we looked at the forage quality analysis, we did see a 3% increase in crude protein as well. So we did see a significant jump in how much protein we had in our in that forage. And then, but interestingly enough, we didn't see a difference in the energy values over the total digestible nutrients. We did not see a major difference. So it was really kind of 1% difference, but not statistically different between the two treatments. So we had more forage per acre, but then we also had a higher protein content was the big takeaways um, from last year's data. And was there any difference in terms of the regrowth after harvest between the two treatments? Massive, massive differences. So we took a couple of pictures and I, like, it really blows you away. And I just was out checking the field yesterday as well. And it is just, you know, that beautiful golden stubble of the cereal that's been taken off. So last year, the monocrop cereal was Advantage Barley that was sponsored by Seacan. If he were to ask Clayton, he would say that was one of the best barley green feeds he's ever put up in his life. So just as a demonstration, it's a newer variety. So just for a forage barley, it really performed beautifully where we were able to get it seeded. And so where it was a monoculture at two bushels an acre, it left a beautiful golden stubble and very little regrowth. Right beside it, consistently, we had the Italian ryegrass was super lush and green and grew back beautifully. The brassicas grew back well, as well as the 40 10 peas and the faba beans. And I never really thought about it until I started looking at these trials a little bit more closely, but the legumes do grow back pretty well. And it's really interesting to see where the cut point is and then just below that cut a little node pops off the stem and you just have this whole new plant pop up from it and so it kept fixing nitrogen well into the fall if we had left it but we sprayed it out and seeded fall rye last year so this year it was just cut for a second time just a little while ago so we'll monitor the regrowth and we'll sample the regrowth and decide if we have the livestock to graze it or if we just let it terminate by winter There's lots of pictures that have been documented for this project that are on the website or that will be uploaded as uh, you're able to write onto the website. Yeah. And some of them are just really very stark. I presented on it for the Manitoba Bee Producers District meetings. And yeah, when you see the side-by-side comparison of just how lush and green that polycrop is 
and you get a sense of what that potential grazing potential could be in, say, October, uh, when you're coming out of your perennial stands, and you could potentially get an additional two to six weeks of grazing, depending on your acres of this regrowth that's kind of free grazing, or you're, you've already gotten your agricultural commodity of green feed off the field. And now all of a sudden you get all these grazing days too. So it really ties into the economics of some of these practices and if they're worthwhile or not. And we're going to talk about the economics in just a minute. But for listeners, if you're interested in looking at some of those pictures, you can visit mbfi.ca and I will link the project page for this project right into the show notes. The next question that I had for you was, was there any differences noticed in the weed pressure between the treatments? Well, I'd say the the polycrop would have competed more with the weeds, but when we actually separated them out and weighed them on a dry matter basis across the variability of the field and what we were able to get seeded, statistically, the weed pressure was not different between the two treatments. And so is that a true reflection of the capacity for polycrops to outcompete weeds or a monoculture to outcompete weeds or is there just was there just so much variability in that field we weren't able to capture that difference when in a really high weed pressure year so kind of have to take that with a with a grain of salt so back to economics for a minute because this study is also looking at cost to production So what was included in this and how did this compare between the two treatments in 2022? For sure. So we always struggle with how to use, like what assumptions to use when we're doing a cost of production or a return on investment comparison. So our inputs in terms of fertilizer and herbicide were the same, were held the same between the two treatments in 2022 and in 2023. Our labor and man hours. So we would have had more labor for seed mixing, but if you were to purchase, you know, a pre-seeded mix, then you wouldn't necessarily have that labor. In terms of passes of the field, so everything was done in the same pass. So there wasn't any additional or differences in equipment hours or fuel or needing different equipment for one treatment or another. So that was all held the same. And so really it boils down to the price of seed being the primary economic difference between the two comparisons. And for this year, uh, using numbers, so for this trial, uh, DLF Pixseed has been a fantastic partner in sponsoring our polycrop seed mixes. And so when we look at what their price sheet is for the species that were included in the mix, it worked out to being about $41 or $40.87 more per acre in just pure seed costs. So if we round up and say, okay, the polycrop green feed was $41 more per acre to seed. However, it resulted in that significantly higher forage yields with an average of 650 pounds of dry matter per acre. And so the resulting cost per pound of dry matter was a half a cent more for the polycrop. So it cost more, but we got more. And so if we looked at what it cost per pound of yield, so the monocrop was about three cents or 2.75 cents per pound of yield, 
where the polycrop was about three cents per pound per yield. So that's a difference of about a half a cent or 0.004 looking at what it cost difference to just get it in the ground and harvest it. So, but we also had more protein content in that forage. So how do you assign a value to having a higher quality feed? Um, That can be kind of tricky and you could probably skin that a few different ways, but we basically just uh, identified that for that marginal price difference, the resulting cost per pound of crude protein and TDN was four cents less and one cent less respectively for the polycrop green feed. So yes, we had higher seed costs, but those higher seed costs paid for themselves in yield and quality is the takeaway. But that was for that growing season. Will we continue to see that yield advantage? Will we continue to see that higher protein content? That's why the multi-year study comes into that because you always have to be careful with these on-farm demonstrations because they're still a snapshot in time and reflective of the growing conditions here at the MBFI Brookdale farm and reflective of you know what the residual fertility was, what the growing conditions were throughout the season. And so a lot of things can shift that. So if you're, you know, at a different area under different soils, you might have different results. You may not see that same yield advantage, but for 2022, we did see the polycrop prove to be a beneficial approach in having more of a higher quality feed compared to just the straight two bushels of barley versus one bushel of barley plus nine other things. So how you value the different components of a ration and what you have at your disposal will really shift whether or not a practice makes sense or not. So on top of economics, what was observed as far as differences in the areas of soil fertility and soil health? So as I mentioned, I'm looking forward to doing that analysis this fall. We did do baseline soil fertility testing, but we didn't see any significant differences last year in the soil fertility testing. But again, we did have a lot of compromising issues with the amount of acres we got seeded and transitioning into terminating in late August and establishing a fall rye cover crop. So that's why I was kind of mentioning earlier, it was a challenge to decide if we try and get a year data out of the trial or write it off. But recognizing our assumptions and limitations of that year's data. There's still value in it. We still saw trends and it provides context for the results that we generate this year. So we'll be doing all of our intensive soil sampling in this next coming month. It's still pretty early for 2023, but do you have any preliminary findings for this year now that the growing season is starting to wrap up that you can share with us? So we've taken the first harvest data, but again, due to managing weed pressure, we did cut a little bit early, but we haven't done the analysis for that data yet. And then we just, because we cut early, everything grew back really well and headed out. So I mentioned last year was the advantage barley. The cereal crop this year is actually spring triticale. And so that triticale grew back beautifully. And it was a second cut of it all was taken in late August. And now 
we're going to be monitoring for regrowth. So we'll be taking clippings for that regrowth probably in about another month's time when we make kind of that decision about how we'll manage the field going into winter. So we haven't, we've collected the data, but we haven't crunched the numbers yet. So looking forward to doing that this winter. What are the benefits of polycrop use for producers in terms of not only the financial aspect, but also how they offer flexibility to producers? It's a really challenging question because it depends on the goals and the context for each producer. So I think for us in growing feed for our cattle here at the farm, I really appreciate the flexibility that having some of these polycultures give us in terms of having something growing that we can either cut and put up for feed or that we can graze. So this year, in addition to this polycrop trial with the replicated comparison to a monoculture, we're also doing some case studies. So just growing a field of full season blend that has been sponsored by Covers and Co and growing a field of the warm season blend that was sponsored. So these are diverse mixes that come prepackaged. And so for those cases, I mean, we had some delays in getting things seeded and we did the full season as a two week stagger. And for this example, it allows us to decide on if we want to try and put it up for silage. Do we want to try and put it up for a green feed? Do we just cut it and swath graze it? Do we graze it standing? So it just gives you a lot of flexibility based on your workflow. And so for the polycrop trial that we've been discussing this afternoon, we've harvested it off and it's just going to regrow now and improve the soil and capture nutrients and keep pumping below ground root exudates into the soil and hopefully be improving that soil underneath those treatments. Whereas under farm management, where we're just growing, you know, another 20 acres of a polycrop, we cut part of it and we're going to have our heifers graze that as kind of an extended grazing practice. Whereas we might graze the other piece standing. And so it just gives us that flexibility to rest our perennial pastures. And so Clayton Robbins that works with us and also manages his own farm just south of Rivers. Something that he's uh, we've talked about and that is a really great tool is using these annual crops in this critical fall period that allow you to rest your perennials as they go into dormancy. So if you can use annual grazing, it takes the pressure off of your perennial stands and that alfalfa and those perennial grasses can still be capturing sunlight and investing it in next year's growth as opposed to recovering from a grazing event. And so it just improves the longevity and the quality of your perennial stands if you can rest them as they prep to go into dormancy. We can't always do that, but it is a really valuable tool to integrate annual cropping grazing into our perennial grazing systems. So being able to grow a green feed, so I'm putting up feed for my winter feed supply, but then I'm also creating an opportunity for diversifying my grazing system in the fall, which Having different options is never a bad thing when we never know what's going to come at us weather-wise or feed supply-wise. So it just is another tool that we can choose to use or not use is really valuable. So the value of having that choice 
does that pay for the seed cost and having to mix a seed that becomes kind of a personal, um, a personal economics piece in terms of how you manage your feed supply and your grazing system. So it, I mean, we can talk about what works here and where we found advantages, but we really enjoy sharing that data for producers to kind of compare that to what their goals are for their systems and where they may want to try something or not try something. I was just thinking as you were answering that, how different the choices, I guess, that you're making this year with having really good regrowth might have been if this ended up being a really, really dry year and we were in kind of more of that drought pinch and maybe you hadn't got as much for green feed. So there definitely is a bit more of an option mm-hmm. when you're using the polycrops, like you said, dependent on what your weather conditions end up like and how dry or not dry your fall is. Oh, completely. One of the good things about increasing diversity in a cropping system is that the buffer for unknown circumstances that may be coming towards us in terms of we go through dry spells. And this year has been really challenging because some areas of the province have been so sporadic. Like, so we have some areas in the province that are facing full drought conditions and other areas of the province that have had timely rains and putting up bumper year crops of grain. Farming is so plagued by uncertainty. So how do you, how do we secure feed supplies that are going to see our cattle thrive under such uncertain climate conditions? And so one of the advantages of using polycrops is that there is that little bit of resilience in as I mentioned earlier, you know, it creates flexibility in your, in your grazing system and in your feed production, but it's also a little bit of resilience to climate. So if we were, you know, in a dry year or a wet year, or maybe it's been dry all summer, but those seedlings have just managed to struggle in existence. And then we get, you know, really timely wet fall, like we had in 2021, then all of a sudden you have, you know, this crazy growth that is going to get you, you know, an extra three weeks or a month of grazing when you're looking at exorbitant hay prices because hay production was so limited under the dry conditions. So diversifying your portfolio may be an option that could work for you to mitigate some of that risk and build some resilience in your management systems. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's really hard to put a number on what that price is for producers and maybe having a little bit of a peace of mind or Mm -hmm. the, I guess the ability to say, if this happens, I have this pack a plan. Yeah. And it can be tough because you could invest in seed and it not grow if the growing conditions aren't right. That's the other tricky piece in terms of if you're looking at some pre-purchase blends is, you know, I'm buying the seed, but like, if it's not going to grow under the conditions I have right now, I'm just donating it to the soil bank versus, you know, growing a monoculture or a simpler mix that, you know, is going to grow on the conditions that are available to you right now. So it, it really does boil back to kind of what each producer's perspectives are on value. And again, it's an investment. So we're not going to see full health returns in the same growing season. It may take a year to see the impact of that. Now, that being said, having a fall rye cover crop really was 
I mean, as much as we sacrificed in terminating last year, it really was very beneficial for this year in terms of having a cleaner seat bed to go into and mitigating some of the moisture issues that we had last year. We were able to we had better seating conditions going into that fall rye that was terminated, you know, a few weeks before seeding. So kind of wrapping this up, you've mentioned that it's kind of dependent on what the producer's goals are and their operation, but why is this information beneficial to share with producers in general? In general, I think there's a lot of conversation in the industry about funding opportunities to grow diverse mixes. There's lots of information coming from seed companies to grow different ways of growing things. And so our goal here at MBFI is always to try and be as unbiased as possible and just to provide data on our experience in trying something in an on-farm demonstration. And so (laughs) we're not telling a great story because we've been, you know, the weather. It's I guess you got to work with what we're given, but the value to producers is to provide all the data. So we're not sugarcoating anything and we're able to hopefully see patterns over the years that will help producers evaluate the information we're sharing and decide if that makes sense for their system. So hopefully this data will provide value in assessing if it makes sense for someone else's bottom line, or if they like the idea of maybe trying some fall grazing on annuals, or if they have a field that has some soil structure problems, you know, maybe with water infiltration or compaction, or they have some issues with undesirable species that they want to try and tackle and improve. This may be a system they want to try on a small scale, and then they can defer to the data that we've collected and shared, or give us a call and ask us what our experience has been as well. If producers are looking for more information, where can they go to find that and how can they get in contact with you? So the last year's data is all up on our website under the mbfi.ca slash projects. And so it's called Annual Forages for Soil Health, I think would be the abbreviated title. Um, And then, so all of last year's data is up on the website, so they can browse through that. But they can also always email us at information at mbfi.ca. Perfect. And like I said before, I will link the project page into the show notes. Is there anything else that you'd like to share before we wrap up today? There's lots of stuff I could share, but I think I'm going to put a pin in it and just focus on this project and just say that, yeah, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this blend, like a diverse mix versus a simple straight green feed cereal compares over the three years. So we, you know, we've looked at barley, we're doing triticale this year. Next year, we're going to be looking at haymaker oats and yeah. I mean, each year we'll have different weather, but are we going to see differences with the cereals? So this is a project that is kind of exciting in terms of there's a lot of interest in how we can improve our soil and our water and our productivity by managing our inputs. And so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to how this project continues to develop and the data that we get from it. And this is kind of putting you on the spot, but do you have a timeline for when there might be additional data from the 2023 growing season available to producers? Oh, that's okay. You can put me on the spot anytime. (laughs) 
our goal is usually we're crunching, kind of compiling all the data through the fall across all of our projects. And so we have upwards of 15 projects concurrent right now. And so we're compiling all the data, getting it all together, uh, reviewing it, and then analyzing it usually starts happening around January. And so we try to have all of our updated reports by late February, early March is when we hope to have everything up on the website. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to meet with me again today to discuss this project. And I'm really looking forward to finding out a bit more information from the next couple of years. Thank you very much for the time, Chantal. You're welcome. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and the Sustainable Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, and Ducks Unlimited Canada. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at MB Beef and Forage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project supporter, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and the Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, and Ducks Unlimited Canada. 